Hey everybody, this is Dr. Priya Gupta here with uh, Interventional Mindset. Um, and on our podcast today, I have a dear friend, uh, Dr. Cindy Matosian, who is the medical director of Matosian Eye Associates and just a expert on ocular surface disease, cataract surgery, and so many other things. So Cindy, thank you for joining us and taking time to talk to us today. Priya, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel honored. Thank you. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, the reason why I asked you um, to come onto the podcast today was because of a recent paper um, that you published uh, titled The Impact of Thermal Pulsation Treatment on Astigmatism Management and Outcomes in Meibomian Gland Dysfunction Patients Undergoing Cataract Surgery. And I mean, this is a topic that is, of course, near and dear to my heart. Um, I, you know, have a clinical and research interest in MGD, but you know, as refractive cataract surgeons, I think over the last few years, we've really kind of drilled down on the importance of treating ocular surface disease and in particular MGD. I mean, it's a huge prevalence um, often underdiagnosed. And I just thought your paper was so timely because um, you know, there's a lot of treatments that are out there for MGD and I think in our pre-surgical patient, we really sort of needed more evidence um, to help everybody understand why we should be, you know, uh, treating MGD before surgery. So if you don't mind, walk us through um, your study and some of the highlights of the study. Well, thank you again for having me on, on this program and this podcast. And you're so right, Priya. You are passionate about MGD and treating the ocular surface pre-surgery just like I am. But even for somebody who isn't, if we think about it, the refractive surface of the eye, that air tear film interface, represents a very high percentage of the overall refractive system for the entire eyeball in our vision, about two thirds actually. So if we just start with that premise, and that's something we all learned in our first year of our residency programs, we can then appreciate how important it is to diagnose and treat and tune up really that tear film, stabilize it in order to get reliable data that we then can use to plan our astigmatism management and calculate our IOL powers. And you can use any formula you want, but if your data is not reliable and you're putting in um, perhaps variable data, then you're going to get a refractive surprise. And especially for patients who have paid cash for maybe a presbyopia correcting IOL or maybe for the correction of their astigmatism, they're not going to be happy if there's residual cylinder or sphere left on the table post-surgery. Absolutely. And, you know, when you think about all the modern tools we have, you know, we have trifocals, we have uh, femtosecond lasers, we have, we have all this technology. And ultimately, if you have an unhealthy tear film, just at what you said, the reliability, repeatability of those um, measures is just not as accurate. And so it always, you know, surprised me that, that treating the ocular surface could make such a difference. Um, and it's something that, you know, a lot of us notice anecdotally, but, you know, your study really highlights in data, in real terms, why and how um, your treatment management uh, might change. Absolutely. And this was a small pilot study, only 25 patients. It was done by me. It was not sponsored by J&J. &J. So, um, 
these were patients who had both MGD and a visually significant cataract. And these were patients who offered, you know, I offered them a lipoflow treatment or thermal pulsation treatment prior to their cataract surgery. They paid for the procedure, it was not gifted to them. So these patients underwent a lipoflow treatment. What I did is I measured all of their parameters prior to the lipoflow. I did their biometry, their keratometry, and their topography. I calculated their IOL, but put it aside. I did their lipoflow. They came back six weeks later, and they did not use anything out of the ordinary during that period of time. They were not initiated on any immunomodulators or any new therapeutics during that six-week period. If they were using tears before, they maintained whatever they were doing pre to post thermal pulsation treatment. They came back six weeks later, the same technician, using the same exact pieces of equipment, remeasured everything, and I recalculated their IOL power and planned for their astigmatism correction. And for this study, the way I kind of parceled it out was that anybody who had between 0.5 and one diopter of cell got a LRI, and anybody one diopter and greater got a toric IOL. Or if the patients wanted to, and they were candidates for, they got a presbyopia correcting IOL. So this study was agnostic to IOL brand or IOL type. And then I waited four weeks. I did my normal post-op regimen, and I did their final refractions. And I calculated what they were using the post-lipoflow data with which I took them to the OR versus what they would have been pre-treatment. I was surprised. There was a 40% change in my surgical plan. And I'm a very like careful calculator. Wow. I'm very meticulous. 40% of the time, I had to change my plan. And what that basically meant is that in about 50% of these patients, they had an increase in the delta or magnitude of their astigmatism. So I went from planning no intervention for astigmatism management to either an LRI or a toric IOL. That was in 50% of patients. In 25% of patients, their cylinder actually went down. So those in whom I had planned a toric ended up with an LRI or an LRI went down to no treatment. And in 25%, the remaining 25% stayed exactly the same. There was no um, detectable change. So that made the 100%. 50% had more, 25% less, and 25% no change. That's crazy. You know, when you look at that, there's not even a way for us to necessarily predict, is it always going to increase? Is it always going to decrease? You know, your study um, eloquently shows that variability is there when there's ocular surface disease, MGD that's untreated. And, um, you know, when we, we talk about astigmatism and the importance of treating astigmatism, um, I, I love the, the, how you presented, you know, how your plan changed because, you know, we have so many tools and, uh, sometimes I think part of why people, um, maybe shy away from astigmatism correction is because, 
it, it feels like it's hard or it's not as consistent, but really, you know, by taking out some of these variables like MGD, you can increase the accuracy and the consistency of your measures. And then really all it's telling you is that by having more consistent measures, you can actually pick the right treatment for your patients. And ultimately and have that, that confidence. Yeah. And have confidence. That's yeah. exactly it. The confidence is, I think, so much of what, you know, we're all creatures of habit and we want to know that if we do something, it's going to lead to a certain outcome. And so um, I just think that this is such an important study to um, highlight that we, we all need to treat astigmatism, but in order to treat astigmatism most accurately, we have to be looking for MGD. Mm -hmm. So Cindy, tell me a little bit about in your practice, um, what are the ways that, you know, how did you implement screening for MGD? I think that sometimes it's a little overwhelming. There's a lot of tools, a lot of tests, and I certainly don't think you have to have every tool and test to be effective at screening, but um, any pearls for the audience on how to efficiently incorporate that into your practice? I would say that the first pearl, if there was one pearl to take home from this podcast, is that assume every cataract patient is a dry eye patient and work them up as such. So if a patient comes to you for a cataract consult, do the dry eye workup. You would be surprised at how common it is to find dry eye disease among this subgroup of patients. We know that from so many other published studies, but what we do is we ask three basic questions. How many times a day do you use your artificial tears? Because somebody who says 10 times a day versus never, you can kind of gauge the level of discomfort they have. We also say, do your eyes feel tired? And does your vision change throughout the day? Those are the three questions we ask. Because we tried to do the OSDI and the speed yeah. questionnaire. It was just taking too long and we couldn't really integrate it. And then some of our technicians were having a hard time adding up all the scores. So, I mean, <laughs> Mental you, gymnastics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we just asked those three questions. We do MMP9 testing on every one of our patients, as well as tear osmolarity and mybography using Lepifu. So when I come in the room, um, they, we, I have my tear osmolarity, MMP9, mybography, and the answers to the three yeah. questions. They're dilated, and then I start my exam. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think the key part of what you're saying here is that so much of it is driven by your staff. Yes. And they can gather that data for you and then, you know, you can do what you love doing, which is being the doctor and integrating it. Um, and I agree, it doesn't, it really doesn't add that much more time. Um, it really doesn't. Each of these tests takes about two minutes, of course, not including the 10 minute processing time for the um, one test, the MMP9, but all the other ones take about two minutes to do both eyes. So perhaps you're adding six extra minutes at the most to your workup. But the end result is you get so much better information. You can pre-treat if warranted, let the patient know there's something else is going on with their ocular surface in addition to their cataract and get the patient involved in his or her ongoing care, because this is not going to end post-cataract surgery. They have to take care of their surface to maintain the good outcomes that you provided them through a lens-based refractive procedure. 
Absolutely. And I think that you, you hit it right on the head by sort of upfront diagnosing the patient. I feel like that goes such a long way. We've all had the patient that, you know, is unhappy with 2020 vision and comes in and is just bitter. And, and it's because, you know, they had dry eye that may be decompensated post-op. And so, you know, we all want to try to avoid those patients. Um, walk us through a little bit of, you know, so once you've diagnosed that the patient has MGD, uh, you know, we're talking to patients about a lot of things at cataract surgery. There's premium technology like femto, presbyopia lenses, astigmatism correction. And, you know, that, that conversation itself can sort of feel like it should be the focus. Um, how do you integrate a conversation about MGD and maybe even introducing some of the in-office MGD therapies to the cataract patient? Clearly, patients get overwhelmed because it is a lot of information. And also, it's, a, it's their sight. They really value their sight much more than many of their other senses. So the first time when I meet them, even though it's a cataract consult, I only talk to them about their surface and tuning it up. And I say, once it's healthier and in better shape, the next time I see you, we're going to talk about the type of implant and what type of vision you want afterwards. But in that interim, I assign them what I call homework. And so we email them information about different types of IOLs and different treatments. We have femto, AI, astigmatism correction, presbyopia correcting IOLs. And so then they while their surface is being tuned up, they become empowered by learning something about the different options. So when they come back, usually I bring them back in about three weeks. That's the average. And I aggressively treat them. I may use not just long-term therapy, but a short course of steroids to just get the surface primed as quickly as possible and stabilized. And then at the next visit, when um, we're not discussing dry eye anymore, except for ongoing purposes, we discuss implants. So I separate the two in order to avoid that overwhelmed patient. And studies actually have shown that when a patient is overwhelmed, they just shut down and say, I want the basic. When you empower them through education, a lot of people value their vision enough that they're willing to maybe forego another area where they were planning on spending their money and kind of divert it towards their um, advanced technology IOL. I think that's so key, education on the IOL front and even um, the ocular surface disease front, you know, it, it helps them to set that realistic expectation. Um, but I, I, you know, think about all of us as we like shop on Amazon, we look at reviews and we want to research things and, and get as much information as possible. And I think you're absolutely right to give the patients an opportunity. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a negative that maybe you're you know, quote unquote, delaying surgery or which really is you're actually giving them a better outcome because you're treating their ocular surface disease first. But it, it's a kind of a, a nice little blessing there to have that time for the patient to um, absorb it all because it does take a little bit of time. And, um, you know, you probably actually have more patients convert to premium technology when given time and education. And that's very true. 
um, we kind of did it not that way and then converted it this way, the uptake was significantly higher. I never calculated it because they had time to digest it, come back um, more knowledgeable and say, yes, I want to spend money to get the best result because it is important for me to be able to not rely on my glasses all the time. Yeah. So, and for those patients that come in and say, okay, you know, you, you're the doctor and you tell them you have MGD, we should treat your MGD. I have patients from time to time that say, well, can we just, can we do this afterwards? Or, you know, do I have to have my, my lipoflow or before surgery, or can I do it, you know, a month or two afterwards? How do you handle sort of, you know, the, the, the patient that would like to, but is sort of apprehensive, um, and any pearls there on talking to the patients? Because we all get those types of patients, for sure. So I let them know that based on my study, and I quote myself, and I say, you can go look it up if you want. I want to deliver the best I know how because your visual outcome is permanent. And I tell them they'll have an opportunity to have a lipoflow once a year, so they will get a chance <laughs> to do it after the surgery down the road yeah. in about a year. But in order to get the best results, we have to get a healthy tear film. And to do that for those patients who have MGD or significant enough MGD where lipoflow would be warranted, I say we need to do it ahead and wait two, three weeks, bring you back. And during that time, I'm also, of course, treating their surface. It's not just lipoflow as for this study, it's lipoflow and other things. It could be lead hygiene, it could be oral omegas, it could be uh, prescription medication, steroid, and more. Yeah, I think that's so key is, is making that strong recommendation. Yeah. You know, patients want to know that you believe in what you're, what you're doing. And, you know, when I first started with um, some of these in-office MGD treatments, you know, like anything new, you're always a little bit skeptical. And, and you know, now Lipiflow has been out for almost a decade. And um, we've had so much experience with it that once you start treating MGD in office, it becomes a much more natural conversation. And I think that, you know, when I try to educate and teach peers, it, that's always something I say is just get a bunch of experience because you'll see the results over time and you'll start to believe in the technology through your own personal experience. And, you know, that's, we, we can't discount our, <laughs> our own um, efforts and, and biases and so I, I think that's exactly you're you're right, Priya. I, I think patients sense when a physician is speaking with confidence, with conviction, and they truly believe it from the bottom of their heart. And patients can sense the body language and read it too. So if a surgeon is hemming and hawing and hesitating, the patient is going to turn down that option. But if the surgeon confidently says, I think, in my opinion, you may end up with a better result because I can get more reliable data, especially for you know, your surface that I see, then most patients, if they can afford it, are going to say yes. Absolutely. Now, do you do these procedures um, on the same day as their evaluation? Do they come back or how do you work with the clinical flow? Because I'm, of course, bringing the patients back for their IOL um, option, I do them on the fly that day. 
if they say yes, because I want to avoid a third visit for the patients. Then it might be viewed as too much of a hurdle or a burden. So we, because my role with LipaFlow is talking about it a little bit, and then of course the technician takes over where they pay for the procedure, I come in, I insert the activators, and then leave the technician stays with the patient for the 12 minutes. And then during that time, they go over different modalities that I'm recommending. So it's used as an educational period because you have a perfectly captive audience. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> they can't read anything. They no. can't their, check their cell phones, you know? So That's it's so all funny. ears. And our technician goes over whatever other procedures um, or recommendations I had made and then they just come back for their final set of biometry, topography, you know, pre-surgical measurements, keratometry, and IOL choice. It works really well. Yeah, that's exactly how I do it. You know, nothing like the present for instant gratification for the patient, but also it's so much easier, you know, not only for our own practices, but for the patient. So I think that, you know, that's wonderful and, and Thank you for sharing all these amazing pearls. So we heard from Dr. Matosian that treating astigmatism is really important and that if we don't treat MGD before, we're going to get more variable um, measures of astigmatism in our preoperative patients. And, you know, Cindy, uh, you've made the case so well with your excellent study. And I really hope a lot of people actually take time to read the paper. It's freely available. Um, it's, it was published in Clinical Ophthalmology. Um, but it's a, it's a great read. And um, if you take home nothing, it's that you need to treat MGD before cataract surgery. So thank you so much for taking time today to join us. Um, it is always a pleasure to learn and to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.